0: it's good to be back. It kind of begins to feel like our church home away from home here at Prairie. I hope that's okay. Um, And I don't quite feel like I'm everywhere present, but it was kind of sounded like it maybe. (laughs) I've been here more than I knew. (laughs) But, uh, it, it was good to be here when I was, and uh, I couldn't have named it exactly. My wife thought maybe it was 10. She whispered quick, and then she realized she wasn't quite right. And Brother Arnie was right on. So it was a good time when we were, I was here then. and I enjoyed that, and I've uh, enjoyed coming back every time since. It's good to be back again this morning. And I did notice that song and found it interesting as it relates to the message that uh, I want to encourage you all to make sure your salvation is intact and it's working for you and that you are experiencing the joy of the Lord and, and you're on the winning side. You're on the winning team this morning. And, of course, that means that you'd be on, on the side of God's church and the Holy Spirit at work. When I was asked to share with you this morning, as I pondered what to share, it was uh, became apparent that I had a, an Drawing to a certain passage, and that was in First Corinthians, chapter 16, the last part of the letter of the Corinthians to uh, the church of the first letter. Some time ago, when I was reading this passage, it just jumped out at me, and I saw a tremendous message in it. And I want to share that with you this morning. However, as I was preparing my My mind had some interesting input that changed the way the message uh, was going to come out. And so it's changed its format just a little bit. For that reason, I'm not going to tell you what the title is yet. I want to introduce you to the thought, the basic thought, the text. Then I want to help you see where I'm going with the title. But in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. Now, do you have a little background to this? This letter to the ephesus the church at ephesus was recorded in acts or the, the things the circumstances surrounded it are recorded in the book of acts and what was happening there paul was preaching and teaching and he was uh, very much involved in changing some things that were happening he got a lot of response from people that were willing to surrender their books of of uh curious arts they had a big bonfire they they got a lot of people converted things were really changing and there was a lot of concern that paul was upsetting the fruit basket and they wanted this thing uh squelched and they wanted to to get things back under control and so uh this is a reference to that and here's what paul is writing at that time he says well, actually, verse 8 says, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. It was like things are really, really fired up here, and so I'm not quite ready to move on. I want to I see this thing through some more. It's kind of the way he's, he's positioning it in this letter. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say in verse 9, For a great door, and effectual, is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. When I read that verse, I didn't know all the context and the setting, but it, was, it struck me as the Christian life. There's a tremendous opportunity for us in, in Christ and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an effectual door that's open that we can walk in and walk through and experience God's leading in our life experience and have him with us. But there's something else to always keep in mind, and that is there is an adversary, and here it makes it plural. He says, and there are many adversaries, and so that's what I was thinking about and wanted to share with you this morning, and yesterday, Marie and I went to town for a little bit, and there was one place of business, I went in, and Marie was out in the car to stay warm, and I went in to check on something, and the the guy that was taking care of me said something about, brought up the idea today was Super Bowl Sunday, he said something about tomorrow, Super Bowl, and And uh, we talked a little bit, and he said, which team are you rooting for? And I said, I'm not even sure who's playing. Then I thought a little bit, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm for the Saints. And he looked at me like, what? (laughs) And I said, yeah, you know, those people that go to church. (laughs) The Christians. all." And I didn't want to let Marie out there in the cold, so... I lost an excellent opportunity to continue a witnessing opportunity. I, I was disappointed that I didn't follow through on that a little more. But at least I gave him something to think about. There was something besides the Super Bowl in focus and some more of us' experience. Now I hadn't I hadn't kept up with the Super Bowl, it was kind of you know, over my head, I mean, I hadn't thought about it. We were over at Hy-Vee earlier, and I saw this big pile of stuff that was supposed to be enticing people to take it home so they can munch and crunch and drink all this stuff while they're watching the Super Bowl. And so I knew that it was coming, but I didn't realize. And then it dawned on me, after I started thinking and processing some of this stuff, yeah, in the paper, I saw something, one of the newspapers, I just happened to glance through, and I saw, it, it talked about the Super Bowl, In another place, I saw where there was two men pictured, and the caption was brothers um, in competition or something like that. Well, what I discovered later was someone said, and then it made sense, that one of the coaches on each team that are going to be playing today are brothers. And so it's brothers at odds. So I thought thought that really was an interesting thing to consider, as as it related to my message. Now I'm not here to to excite you all about the Super Bowl and go home and just just really wish you knew what was happening. Uh, Maybe go to your neighbors and find out. I'm not at all in favor of that. But you know, Apostle Paul talked about some of the things that happened in Rome and in Athens, some of the some of the competitive things that were going on there. And I don't think he's promoting it, but he used it as an illustration. So. I felt like I had the freedom. One of the men back at Marathon said, you're going to use a Super Bowl in your message? I mean, you're going to... I said, well, what did Apostle Paul do? He talked about the races. He talked about the, the prizes. He talked about... I said, "So he talked about the, 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 you know, the world of athletics. So bear with me if you have a problem with it. Um, you ladies wait and ask your husband at home. <laughs> but the rest of you, I'll talk to you. Well, I'd like for us to continue on in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16. There's another verse there that follows that verse that I found interesting to pursue. And uh, it sheds some more light on this and actually opens it up for further consideration. If I can find where I need to be here. Going on down to verse 13 and 14. He says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all things be done with charity. Now, if I would take this phrase and change it just a little bit, I can imagine that the coaches today are going to continue to tell their men, quit you like men, be strong. Actually, Brother Dale was sitting in his study, and I was conversing with him. He wanted to know what I was going to preach about, and I was sharing with him. And he said, I told, you, told him, I, you know, quit you like men. Be strong. It's kind of the, the punch of this passage. He said, I've got a note right here in my Bible that might interest you. And, and it did. Quit you means do not flinch. Maintain your ground and press forward. Do you think the coaches want their men to do that? <laughs> I think all of that's included in quit you like men. Is don't flinch. Don't give up. Press forward. Put your head down and, and keep heading toward the goal. Then don't lose your ground. Don't give up any territory to the enemy, to the adversary. But that's what we're being told by this passage. Quit you like men. Be strong. This morning I want to encourage you all in your spiritual, in your spiritual quest for victory. To not flinch. To press on and don't lose any ground. That is what I want you all to understand is the focus of this message. Therefore, I've entitled it, Who's Going to Win the Spiritual Bowl? I hope that we're all winners. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we have this phrase, quit you like men. And I went back there to that passage and thinking it was going to support this idea of Christians giving it all they've got. And I was surprised. It wasn't. Let's look a little bit here in this passage. In 1 1 Samuel 4, it's where this this phrase first originates in Scripture, if I understand right. But at verse nine, I'm going to. um, I put a marker in my Bible so I can find it easy. Here I put it in Second Samuel, so I've got to find, find the right page. After all, it says, "Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews." as they have been unto you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. This was this is the admonition given to the Philistines who were going to come up against the Jews, the Hebrews. But I want you to look at what happened here. I'm not going to take time to read all this, but I want us to notice that <clears throat> what happened here was that the Philistines had come in against the children of Israel and had fought with them and they had won. And the children of Israel went home just in, in bad shape. They were defeated. And so they got their heads together and they said, well, let's, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it down and so it's with us and then we'll fight and then we'll win because we have the, co- the Ark of the Covenant with us. We have God's presence with us we'll win for sure and they got so excited they started to, to sing and shout and get excited and all this noise got the Philistines nervous because they said uh oh the, the Hebrews have gotten excited they figured out something that, that we better be prepared for and so that's where this verse comes from their leader tells them we've got to fight against them and they really have, are charged up they really have had a rally and they're ready to go So we better get ready to go too. And so he says, quit you like men. Be strong. Don't give up. When you go after them, go after them. Go get them. And as it turned out, they won again. Because they were so charged up and they knew they had to fight so hard because they had God's presence there. They had a lot of work to do. So they really went in there ready to fight. And it worked. God's army was defeated again. Well, I'm going to leave that there for a little bit. I will come back to it. But let's leave that right there. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit now and think about, about the, the, the battle that we're in. It's been prefigured in the Old Testament. We have a reference to that in, in Galatians chapter 4. We have reference to Abraham and his two sons. Now, Abraham had more sons later, but these are the ones in focus. These are the ones we consider Abraham's sons. And so, in chapter 4 of Galatians, I'll read beginning at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendered to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar. For this, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, And answereth to Jerusalem, which is now, or now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that thou bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are the children of promise. But as then he was born after the flesh, excuse me. But as then he was born after the flesh, persecuted. But as he then that was born after the flesh was persecuted. uh, um, I'm sorry, this verse doesn't come together. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so, it is now. Now, maybe I stumbled on that so much, so you really, I really got your attention. I hope you got it. What it's saying is that the son that was born outside of promise, the first son who was, re- who was a representation of the law, is he that persecutes the one that was born according to promise, who was the real son, who was Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We, according to the allegory, as children by the Spirit of God, are born as sons of promise. And the, the persecutor, is, is our adversary who is the law or those outside of the promise. And so that means that we are adv- all our adversaries are those who are outside of the promise. And by the way, that doesn't get too far away. Uh, <clears throat> we, we have some things to deal with right inside of where we operate, and I want to, I want to share that. To me, I, want, uh, I, I found it very interesting in studying this, this subject of this, the elder son and the younger son discovered, well, one time when I was teaching types at Manatha, I, I had this question. Why is it that on a number of occasions, God, in the run-up of the patriarchs, he would bless the youngest son over the elder? We have this happening a number of times. We have, we, first of all, we have um, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the older son. Isaac was the younger son. Then we have uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the second twin to be born. He was the younger, but God gave him the blessing. He actually allowed him to get the blessing, even though it was through deception and so on. But it was set up that Jacob would be the one who was the recipient of the blessing. And then we go on down in time a little further, and we have uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And when Jacob was going to bless them, he couldn't see. But God's spirit was upon him to know that he needed to cross his hands and give the blessing where God wanted it. And Joseph was not happy. He said, wait, whoa, whoa, dad, you're not getting this right, you can't see. So why are you crossing your hands? I've got them standing here like they're supposed to be. The oldest one is under your right hand. He said, no, I'm sorry, but I know what I'm doing. And he crossed his hands again and he blessed them. He blessed the younger instead of the older. What's this all about? Is this something that we're supposed to learn from? Does it mean something? And as I reflected on that, I began to become aware of this, this scenario that then is referred to here in Galatians. That the youngest son is the son of promise, not the elder son. And I see something that is typified that goes with us today. And that's with each one of us. Every one of us has an elder and a younger aspect. That's those of us who are, have uh, reached the age of accountability and we have, we have responded to the call of God in our life and we have crucified the older so that there was possibility for a younger to be born. And so the birthday of our conversion is when the new man, the man of promise, came into existence and the elder which we still have with us needs to be subject to the younger or we're in trouble and the elder still represents the law continues to want to have his way but we but we need to have him in subjection to the younger the man of the of promise if god is going to be able to work in us a work of victory and so to be on the right team we have, we have got to crucify the older brother in our life experience on a daily basis. If we do that, then we can have victory with God's blessing in the life of the son of promise. I'd like to take us to Exodus chapter 17. We have Moses Aaron and her facing a conflict. They are fighting the Philistines and the Philistines are an offspring of, you know, there's, there are different situations of families where there was this brother that, that, uh, represented the flesh. And there was a brother that represented the promise. The Philistines are from our, are, are what we would consider the Arabs, which are, uh, uh down from the lineage of Ishmael and we have the Jewish the Hebrews who are from the lineage of Isaac But here in uh, Exodus chapter 17 beginning at verse 9 and Moses said well verse 8 I guess uh, puts it in his perspective then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim and Moses said unto Joshua Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses said unto him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and set it up under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and called the name of it, Jehovah Nessah, for he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, it's kind of interesting to look at the contradiction in this passage. It's not really a contradiction, but it looks like. Here it says that um, Moses was supposed to rehearse that God was going to put Amalek Out from under heaven. Remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Then it goes on to say in the last verse. But we're going to have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What does it mean? I'm convinced that what this is saying is that Amalek has no place in the place of promise. He has to be dealt with. He has to be crucified. However, he's not going to go away. But he has to continually be kept in his place. Again, we have this type of the old nature, the old man, and the spiritual man, the man of promise. And there's conflict. But, but God, in his, in his order, has ordained that we, as the sons of promise, have right to the kingdom, but, the, but Amalek does not. Basically, what it's saying is, if you want to get to heaven on your own, I'm sorry, but you're not going to make it. If you think that you can be carnal, you can live after the flesh, you can do things your way in life, and you're going to, to be under God's providence and under his hand, and you're going to be on the winning side, you're going to come through with victory, sorry, you'll be disappointed because you're fighting from Amalek's perspective. You're on his team. You're not on God's side. But if you surrender to God and allow him to be in charge of the battle, if you are with Moses, under Moses' command... And you have the support of the prayers of the saints, and you are uh, fighting for God on on his side, you're on the victorious side. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. That's the verse I want us to focus on. i going to back up to verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There's an ongoing conflict and it's not something we can tangle with on our own. But it is, it's a tangle of spiritual, of the spiritual realm. We wrestle against powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness. Satan is out to destroy the church. He's out to destroy God's people. He's out to destroy the son of promise. And on our own, we're no match. We need to put on the armor of God to be able to make it. And to put on the armor of God, we've got to surrender some things. We need to surrender to the authority of the church. We need to surrender to the authority of God at work in our life through His Holy Spirit. We need to be able to put sin in its place. We need to repent and find forgiveness for sin. We need to live beyond and above sin by the power of the Spirit. Because we need to be righteous. We are not going to be victorious if we're allowing the flesh to call the shots because it's through our flesh and through our old nature old man that the power of Satan works you know I've said this before and it's, I think it's pretty profound really not because I say it and I'm not sure I even thought of it but uh, myself but it's true and that is Satan has no way to gain entrance into your experience except through the flesh he can only tempt you through your fleshly or carnal appetites. If your if your old man is dead, if he's crucified, Satan's out of business in your life. And to make that more graphic, we I think maybe you've probably heard me say this already, some of you anyway, that if you're having a funeral and one of your one of the, the deceased is up here in a coffin and somebody that had been an old friend would want to say, Oh, I just cannot stand the separation. I wish we could We could have more time together. like to have some more fellowship. And they say, well, I remember that my friend just loved ice cream. So they bring some ice cream and, and talk to this corpse and say, you know, I've got ice cream. Would you like to have a party? You think they'd get anywhere? The flesh is dead. There's no response. Sorry. And that's the way it is when Satan comes with temptation. If we are dead to self. Satan will not get the response he's looking for. Because he can only operate as the flesh, the carnal nature. Reaches out with an appetite for what has been offered. I like to look at some of the tactics of our adversary. You know, one of the things about a football team, I, I don't know this that well, except that I've, I've, been, I've been exposed to this knowledge. Of, I know it happens. And that is that football coaches have someone at every game of all the opponents that they might face in a season and they're videoing every game. And they take those videos back and they look at them and they look at them and they look at them. Because they want to see how every player plays, what his weaknesses are, and how they can best confront their adversary on the field. And we as Christians need to be aware of the tactics of our adversary. We need to be aware. Apostle Paul in his writing says we need, we need not be ignorant of the devices, and, and I'm paraphrasing this, but of, of Satan. We need to know, we, not that we go out and we study him, but we study the word to understand how do we need to be prepared against his tactics. And we have plenty in the word to help us understand. I'm not going to get all that covered this morning. I want to look at some of the adversary's tactics. And we're going to look, go back to Ephesians for most of those. You notice I'm not really spending much time talking about the armor. I mentioned there in Ephesians 6 that we need to have the armor of God. And I could preach a whole sermon, and and another preacher probably has preached a whole sermon, on on the armor of God and what it means and how it's supposed to benefit us. And that's great. But this morning, my focus isn't so much on the armor as it is on the heart of the man that's wearing the armor. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Our adversary would like us to fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. In other words, our neighbors may want us to be involved in fellowshipping with them in ways that would make them feel good. And they feel like it would be great because we could be better friends. Marie and I have had a friend for almost 40 years. of friends, it's another family. Very, very nice couple. They moved into the house that we moved out of shortly after we were married. They, they bought the place after we were moving to another place and we began, and, but we only moved up through the field about a half a mile and so we were neighbors and we related back and forth, learned to know them quite well. He was a college professor He taught um, language arts, or communication arts, or something like that. Basically what that translates into, he was the head of the drama department. And he actually wrote plays, and then he trained his students how to perform and how to bring these plays, present them. And so every so often, his students would present a uh, performance. And he told us that he'd just love for us to come And see what he does, and be able to see what how he uh, functions in the in the in the university. Well, you know, I would love to have gone. I just there's something in me that that would just really appeal to me. I just love to sit down and see a good a good um, theatrical presentation. I just love to analyze things. Fact is, one of the I'll just honestly admit to you that one of the things that tempts me the most about watching television isn't so much that I get wound up in the filth and the garbage. I like to analyze how they do all those things and make things happen on, on the screen. I like to know what was behind everything that happened and just kind of think, how did they, how did they set that up? how did they pull that off? That's the things, and, and you know, that seems real noble. <laughs> There's nothing really wrong with that. And that's the other sneaky trick of our devil, our adversary. Because if, and I have, I've yielded to that some in my life and I've had to repent. Because it sets me up then to be there for the other stuff he wants to cram down my throat that I'm not expecting to get. But I'm human and I can, I can yield to that stuff too. And I, but you know, Satan is so tricky. He knows who we are. He knows what our weaknesses are. He knows what makes us tick. He has studied us. He has been watching the video. He knows what it is that we kind of hanker after. And that's why he likes to set up situations where that weakness will be exposed and it can e- we can easily stumble and slip into disobedience. But anyway, back to this uh, neighbor. One time he came to me, he said, Nelson, he said, I really want you to come. He said, I have designed a play that's as clean as they can get. There's no filth in it. Basically, he was telling me it's a Mennonite production. <laughs> And, you know, there's no reason you can't be there. And he said, actually, I have the tickets for you right here. Now, symbolically, he didn't have them in his hand. But he said, I've got the tickets. All you have to do is come. And we've got a front row seat reserved for you and your wife. (sighs) That was tough. I mean, it was tough. We had a lot of appreciation for these people. They weren't weren't scum. (laughs) They weren't worldly people. They had principle about them. They had... They had a lot of things going for them. The only only big problem I had with this this friend of mine was he was not agnostic, but he said as a young man, he got fed up with church. The hypocrisy that was in church, he was too smart to to accept and be fed. All this stuff that people were telling him that the Bible said, but they weren't willing to live, and he got tired of it. He said, I finally had a talk with God, and he said, we work things out, and I'm satisfied with that. tough cookie I witnessed to him in different ways we tried to talk about spiritual things and we just kind of run into a wall but he did acknowledge that God was at work in my life I guess you could say that one time we were there for a meal and he said it was some sometime soon after I'd been ordained and he would figured that out I don't know how he heard it but he said well we have a proper preacher here he said I believe I'll ask you to ask the blessing I kind of had the impression that when I wasn't there there wasn't a blessing but his wife did go to church, and actually, it was kind of interesting, the reason I thought that was because when he would say that, she would go, yeah, please, lead us in prayer. You know, she was, she wanted that. She, she wanted him to go to church. She loved to have had that for herself. But I don't think she was ready to become a Mennonite either. She was also, she was uh, in charge of the, of the dance lessons and all that part of, of, of the university. I don't know about in charge, but she was very much involved in that. She wouldn't have made the best men either. It had been a lot of sacrifice, a lot of dying to do. But we still witnessed to them and invited them. And so what I'm saying is, I don't want to condemn them. I, I, they're not bad people. But they were in, inviting us to become involved in the unfruitful works of unrighteousness for us. And that's a temptation. It's out there. It's real. It's not that bad. It's just that it's not what God requires of us in relation to our responsibility to the church and to to his bride, to his his people. You know, I'm sure that today when the ball game is being played, that those men on the team will not come up with their own plans of action. Uh, We're going to execute this play this time and not even talk to the rest of the group. They can do it their way. I'm going to do it my way. You know, if that happens, I know who's going to win. It's going to be the opposing team. And the same is true in the, in the church of God, church of Jesus Christ. We need to be surrendering to each other, submitting to each other, and be part of the team. That, oh yeah, I, these plays might be made, made a little different approach. Another church might do it just a little different, but that doesn't mean that we should split our church apart because we're not just like somebody else in another church denomination or another church we have the opportunity to work together as a team here In fact is we have more than an opportunity we have the mandate to function as a team and even though some things could be pretty neat forms of worship or whatever if they're not what's agreed on here they become the unfruitful works of unrighteousness to us because we're going outside of what God has asked us to, to do in terms of relating to each other as a family as a church unit Responding to the authority that he's placed over us. And so the unfruitful works of darkness can be very elusive. In other words, they can be shaded in a way that they don't look that way. And I'm using some illustrations that have to do with church life. There's other things. There's many things that we could talk about. I don't have time, nor I haven't thought them all out either. The Spirit can help you see those. Maybe you're thinking of some right now. Fact is, I'm going to do something I don't often do. I'm going to just stop right now and say... Have you thought of something that would illustrate this point? I've been amazed at how the Spirit works at bringing a message. A lot more messages get preached than what I preach. I've said already there's a message, there's as many messages preached as there are people out there because the Spirit's interacting with you all and you may be thinking of things I haven't. Any unfruitful works of unrighteousness that may look pretty sugar-coated that you can think of, is it reading the sports page on Monday morning, see who won the Super Bowl? <laughs> I'm not saying that that would condemn you. <laughs> but if that's where your heart is, and you did that instead of reading your, your Bible and finding out how close you can get to the Lord for the day on Monday morning, I'd say that might be coming real close to that category. Well, <clears throat> not getting an answer to this question doesn't dis- disappoint me a bit. But because I think it's been effective, you're thinking. And hopefully that will carry on the rest of the week. You'll be thinking about what are those things that could, I could be involved in just without even realizing it. That it's, the, it's our, my opponent that's taking me down the wrong road. We need to be aware of that, that that's what's happening. I'd like to go to Luke for a, a little bit. <clears throat> Chapter 8. Another, one of the tactics that our adversary uses, <clears throat> well, it's, it's more than one, but I want us to look in several verses here in Luke chapter eight, <clears throat> verse 14. We have the parable of the sower and we're just jumping in right here at the end of the parable of the sower. It says, and that which fell among thorny uh, thorns, the seeds that fell among thorns, are they which when they have heard Go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Our adversary knows that if we have gotten charged up, we have gotten instructions that have excited us to go out and serve the Lord. But if he throws some concerns in, in, in our way on Monday morning or Tuesday morning or whenever next week about the cares of this life... Um, Riches, oh yeah, we've got to be sure we take care of that, that, that money market that's coming due. We've got to be sure that we get that thing put where it gains the most money next, for the next cycle of investment. And so we forget all about reading our Bible that day or the next day because we've got to get on a computer. We've got to find out where's the best place to put this money. I don't think that's y'all's problem probably, but I'm just using this for illustration. However, if it is, Lord bless you for being successful. But be careful with it. You see, these are things that Satan can do. He can take legitimate things and get us so involved in them that we lose out with the spiritual growth and, and depth that we should in, enjoy. And it's—he's it, naming things here that really come close home, at least to me. Not that I'm worrying about. I don't—I don't look about where to invest my money. Don't get me wrong. But I'm still concerned about my my business, uh, making sure I get out there and keep things going. And uh, there's times when uh, I don't usually confess my wife's sins but or faults. <laughs> uh, I'm using her for a symbol for women right now. They tend to have the temptation or can be more open to the temptation to be concerned about is my husband thinking right? Is he making enough money? Is he spending the right time doing the right things so that he 's not wasting opportunities for make sure that we have the security that we need? You see, we, we talked this morning about the woman 's role in, in the home, and it 's tough for a woman to to uh, be able sometimes if she feels like maybe her husband's off-focused a little bit and he's not being concerned enough about his job or the things that keep the money coming, she's looking to him for security, but she knows without money he's not very secure. (laughs) And so her security can start in him and in God's provision can start to waver, thinking, well, maybe the money's not going to be there, and really that's where she's uh, focusing on for security. Now, I'm not saying she's got a problem with that, but she would admit that sometimes... That's a thought that crosses her mind. Is, is, is Nelson thinking right to make sure the money keeps flowing into the checking account so we can cover the bills? And if I took a show of hands, I can bet she's not the only one. And so these things are subtle. They're everyday kind of things. But our focus needs to be on the one that we can trust. The one that we are really fo- uh, focusing on with our faith. <clears throat> then I go back to Ephesians. Chapter 5. Looking at verse 14. Wherefore he saith. Awake thou that sleepest. And arise from the dead. And Christ shall give thee light. So then. Verse 15. So then that ye walk circumspectly. Not as fools. But as wise. Awake from sleep. You know. Our adversary likes for us to take a nap, spiritually. He likes for us to, to just kind of put things on uh, cruise control or autopilot and take a snooze. I don't, I don't know how many of you heard about the, the uh, airplane that missed its destination sometime back. And the, um, let's see, is it AFA? F- FAA. F-A-A was really concerned, and they had right to be. This guy, this plane was off course and didn't come in for the landing it was supposed to, and here they discovered the pilots were both asleep. They, they just didn't wake up and, and uh, kick the computer off t- to bring the thing in where it belonged. You know, we can become so satisfied and so uh, uh, adjusted to the fact that, well, we've had it on course for so long that really everything's kind of working, and, and we can kind of be on autopilot. We get up every morning, uh, we put on the right clothes, we put on the right smile, we go to the right job, we do all the right things. But if we're not staying plugged into the responsibility we have to keep our spiritual life awake and alert and growing. In other words, we might think, well, I don't need to have devotions again today because I'm in a hurry and I've got to make sure I get to work on time and whatever, whatever, and have excuses. And after a while, this becomes routine, but we're still going to church, we're still putting on the right clothes. My relationship with the Lord, nobody really uh, knows what that is. And and I've got it down pat. I kind of know what I'm doing. That's being put to sleep. We need to have a vibrant, plugged in connectedness with God, the Holy Spirit, His Word. Every day, we need to refresh that relationship. And I'm not going to say that you're going to, uh, that you are on the outside and you're lost because you missed reading your Bible one day. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying if it becomes a routine that we're satisfied without drinking at the fountain, we're asleep. We haven't gotten up for breakfast spiritually. And then we go on in this passage. Verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You know, what do you do with your time? What do you do with the way you live? Is it spent taking care of the old carnal nature's interest or is our time used to redeem the opportunities that are for God's glory in our life and for the benefit of our family and for the church and for our neighbors with the eternal perspective in view redeeming the time making it worthwhile that one comes pretty close home too it's so easy to just kind of think well I've done enough for the Lord now I can do a while for myself I can enjoy. I'm not saying we don't enjoy life. I'm not saying that at all. But it needs to be kept in perspective. Why? We do what we do. And when we have the privilege of maybe relaxing a little. If it's, if it's taking precedent over the important things in our life, then I'd say we are not redeeming the time. And then it goes on in verse 17. It says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. This is a responsibility. You may say, well, I don't have it all together like Brother Dennis does. You know, he's got the responsibility to, to study and to preach and to feed me. And so I'll let him, I'll make sh- you just, Dennis will help me understand. I'll just go to church at least once a week, Dennis or Warren or Brother Arnie or, let me see, who else feeds you all here? Um, Dwight did this morning. And you just and others. But you just leave it up to them. This is personal. It says, be wise. Be not unwise. But understanding what the will of the Lord is. We have that personal responsibility to stay plugged in to what's happening. In other words, getting back to the football field. What do you think would happen if if half of the team they got ready for the for the next down and they were they were all ready for the what do they call that? The uh the the snap of the ball, whatever. And one of them is thinking about, I hope that, that the, my wife got out the steaks to thaw so that after the game we can have a good grilled uh, uh, steaks for supper this evening. And the next guy is thinking about, I hope my wife took the keys from the car and locked it so nobody steals my car. You know, they're thinking about all these other things and the, the ball gets snapped and, oh, oh, yeah, we're playing ball. You think they'd be on the winning side? They need to be plugged in, understanding what's going on moment to moment to moment. I found it interesting that Paul said in our lesson, in our Sunday school lesson, I'm not trying to re- redo the Sunday school lesson, but it's just so interesting, some of the things that were there this morning. But he says, those that are ignorant, just be ignorant. Do you think that means that he gave everybody the legitimate right to be ignorant? No, he's making a statement. If that's the way you're going to be, that's the way you're going to be. Wake up. Don't be ignorant. I believe that's kind of what he's saying here. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Well, I want us to look a little bit at the formula for victory. In other words, I want us to understand that the difference between the Super Bowl and the Spiritual Bowl is that those who are going to win spiritually don't necessarily make the most points But they're the ones that stay in the game all the way through. That's the goal. In 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 5 we have Paul giving us a very appropriate admonition. 2 Timothy 2 He says, Thou therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses the same commit Thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please himself. That, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm reading something into there. that That's implied. It goes on to say that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if any man also strive for masteries, yet... Is he not crowned except he strive lawfully? In other words, if you think you can win and you don't have to go by the rules, you're not really going to get the crown in this race, in this contest. In verse 6, he goes on to say, The husband that laboreth must be first partakers of the fruits. In other words, you've got to do it according to the rules so that you can get the benefits of the crown. Now, I told you I was going back to 2 Samuel. Or to first Samuel and finished back there, but time's slipping away. I just want to call to your attention what happened back there. <clears throat> they had, had lost to the Philistines, and they came to realize that if they're going to be successful, they have got to get back with God. And Samuel told them there's there's idolatry, you're you're following your own way, you're doing things without your heart the right place. And actually uses that, that term, your hearts. And so they repented. They gave up their idols. They came full circle around back to obedience to God. And the Philistines came up again against them. And this time, God took over and he created a tremendous thunderstorm. And it scared them half to death and away they went. And they chased them and they spoiled them. And it was like it was supposed to be. However, it didn't just happen that easy. When God was working with them through all this, they were just scared that they were going to lose again. But through these steps of obedience, they regained their faith and their footing. And then they were victorious. But God was doing it for them. They weren't doing it on their own. The old man had to die. Their own carnal desires and designs weren't able to pull off the victory. Remember, they went and got the... The Ark of the Covenant, somebody asked me recently, why did they, why did they bring the Ark of the Covenant and in, in God in their presence and it didn't work? Well, the, the answer is pretty simple. They were, they were focusing on that Ark as an idol. Their heart wasn't there. They weren't truly worshiping God. They were simply worshiping the Ark of the Covenant. It was another one of the idols. They had other idols. Now they had another one. And God doesn't operate that way. You know, it's the church Or the way you live is not your ticket. It's got to be respected. It's got to be involved. But it's got to be your heart that's right. Or God cannot do it for you. And we cannot do it on our own. And so they had the victory. Because they were willing to come under God's authority. And to get right with God in their hearts. And then they could have the victory. Now let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verses uh, 10 through 13. Actually, I wanted to read chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. First, it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it, speaking of Christ and his church, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's what the church needs to look like. That's what the winning team is. Then Ephesians 6 tells us how this all works. Verse 10: Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to do, stand. In other words, stay on your feet. Football player that slips and stumbles and falls cannot help win the game. Stand, be ready, be at it, be involved. And this is speaking to the spiritual. And then he says in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And the faith is, is actually, I just want to, to make it, uh, bring it together in a summary. Our faith in God, proper faith, is a response to right surrender to the, to the authority of God in our life. It's taking God at his word. It's letting him have his way. We have to be able to be making this choice by faith in God. Because faith on our part, is what unlocks grace from God. Give us the ability to do it his way, to do it with the power that we need. And so I'm convinced this morning that this congregation is on the winning team. As long as we make these applications in our life, we will win the spiritual bowl. No questions asked. And there's a crown. There'll be a trophy. There'll be a prize. Everlasting life and a lot more. Let's keep fighting. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the provisions you've made for us that we can be victors in this conflict, in this earth. We just thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that it will go with us, that that your spirit can use it to help us to sort out the activities of our daily experiences, that we can continue to be on the winning team with our lives and the way we function and the way we serve you. Thank you for this congregation. Father, just bless them abundantly. Make them a blessing in this community and bless them right through to eternal glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.